I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you a million murders. Hello, everybody. Hello. We are back. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-back. Yes. So, we are going to be going over the second part of part dose. Yes, we're doing part two of the Kathleen Peterson case. So, it's supposed to be three parts, but I may be able to make it into two. So, we shall see. Mm-hmm. All right, so where we left off last time, for those of you who may need a little recap, um, they had ex- examined, they had exhumed Margaret and Martha's mom. And, you know, because we just mm-hmm. found out that not only has Michael Peterson's second wife, Kathleen, fallen down the stairs, but one of his very close friends that he knew when he was still married to his first wife also fell down the stairs and died in a very tragic, accidental, possibly manner, and he was the last one to see her alive. Mm-hmm. So they've exhumed her body and everything, and... That has to suck for the family, though. Oh, yeah. Like, it's... Anytime they have to do that. Oh, yeah. You know, so they had her reexamined by the same lady who did Kathleen's autopsy, autopsy, autopsy and... You know, she sees kind of like the same lacerations on the back of her head Mm -hmm. as Kathleen. And then they changed it from accidental death to homicide and everything went crazy. And so um, Detective Holland and Frida Black from the prosecution go to Germany to find out more information. Um, And so where we're going to pick up is when the trial begins. So here we go. So on July 1st. The trial begins. The community is divided on what happened to Kathleen. District Attorney James Harden gives the jury his opening statement. He said he wanted to basically lay out where he anticipated the evidence was going to show, um, what the evidence was going to show, and that the case was going to be built on pieces of a puzzle, and it was going to take a long time to do it. So he also told the jury, why can't I talk? He also told the jury that Michael was a man that viciously killed his wife and that the blood will tell the story and speak for Kathleen. One of the first things James did was show the jury the seven lacerations on Kathleen's shaved head, which like, Mm -hmm. you know, and said, this is what was done to this woman. He then told them how he believed the lacerations were made, which was with the blow poke. Mm -hmm. So the defense is preparing their opening statement too. And David Rudolph began by playing the 911 calls Michael made that night. David also described a storybook perfect marriage that wasn't ended with murder. He also pointed to Martha and Margaret and reminded everyone that he selflessly adopted the girls and they were standing behind his innocence. So, you know, he's trying to... Like, yeah, I mean, somebody who is selfish like that and can adopt those kids i mean they can't be bad people right right yeah like if you're that selfless you know so the prosecution would later have someone get on the stand for michael's past in an attempt to prove a motive the prosecution called brent walgamot to the stand okay so this is where it starts to get really you know crazy because it's like here we go so brent was a male escort at the time of the trial so For those who don't know what an escort is, it's like a male sex worker. So, a little different than, like, some sex work. You know, it's not really like a, you know, you're on the street. Yeah. But it's more of like a, I don't know how to explain it. Because I don't want it to be, like, low class, upper class. Like, I don't want to say it that way. But, like, it's different. Like, you can call him or you can arrange to meet with him in a different way. Like, if you really want to know, just Google it. Yeah. So, okay. So he's, a, yeah. So he's a male escort. And Brent said he knew how to market himself. So, yeah, he has a website and everything. So on his mm-hmm. website, there were lots of testimonials from his clients saying he was worth every penny. So they, <laughs> they on there. Okay. The, 
his customers are like, it's worth it. Like, <laughs> is it worth it? Let, let me work, work it. I'll okay. put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. Like, it's your mm-hmm. if it's 10 out of 10 <laughs> recommend. Like, they're like, yes. So when he was on the stand, they asked him what types of services he performed. He said that was a pretty broad question, and it basically was a companionship for other males of legal ages. Yeah, go ahead and throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, this is not... Because, you know, people can take that. Yeah, well, and people do. People yeah. make it that. And it's like, no, like, of legal ages. So don't be up here trying to act like I'm anything other than what I'm being. So Frida Black, which is, you know, on the prosecution, mm-hmm. questions Brent about a series of emails he received in August of 2001, four months before Kathleen died. Brent said he was contacted by who he would later find out was Michael Peterson, and there was a constant communication trying to find out when they could get together and how much it would cost. They finally agreed on September 5th, 2001. Peterson apparently looked very comfortable in his emails with Brent, which made people believe he had been doing this all along. In the end, Brad canceled the meeting because he didn't feel like meeting up with him. So that's The kinda, sex worker. Yeah, the sex worker was like, eh. And didn't, so I feel like that's got to be awkward. Yeah. You know, not that they have to be with anybody like, like, oh, the sex worker, anyone. That's not what I mean. But like, I feel like that's just awkward. And now everybody knows that he's just like, "Mm, I wasn't feeling it. So I wasn't. It's like, (laughs) well, it's all out there. So David Rudolph wanted it to be known that Michael did mention Kathleen in the emails. He told Brent that he and his wife have a loving relationship and that she knew he was reaching out to Brent and that she was okay with it as well. Mm. Brent said this wasn't hard to believe because he had other clients who had similar relationships as well. The defense said this showed that he didn't want to harm the relationship with Kathleen, so why would he want to kill her? Kathleen's sister disagrees. She said that he was cheating on her and her sister wouldn't stay in a marriage where there was infidelity or you know, polyamorous situations going on. Because, I mean, she did divorce the first husband because he was cheating on her. You know, so just being like, okay, I'm cool. Let's be polyamorous. Like, does not seem like something that she would be okay with. Yeah, you know. Um, So the next topic was the blood. It was on the walls, the rising of the steps. And on the steps, there were a lot of it, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to figure out if all the blood at the crime scene was caused by several falls trying to get up the stairs or by being beaten to death. Yeah, like it's and I mean, it's a lot. So the prosecution calls a key witness, Dwayne Deaver, who's a blood spatter expert that they called from the State Bureau of Investigation team. Under questioning, Deaver explained he went through great lengths to figure out how much blood could be in the staircase. Dwayne Deaver, Daniel George, and members of Daniel's team went to the FBI lab in Raleigh to do experiments. They remade the stairwell and they took a mannequin head with a wig attached, dipped the back of the wig in pig's blood, Mm. and struck it over and over in the stairway with a blunt object just to see if the stairwell would look similar to the crime scene. They believed she was standing and someone was attacking her from behind with an object on her head. When they pulled the object back, the blood casted off of the object and landed in a downward fashion on the wall. Deaver then explained that the blood splatter wasn't just on the walls. Michael had been wearing a jersey knit t-shirt and shorts that night. And his shorts were smeared with blood and dried blood splattering was on the inside of his shorts, mm-hmm. on the legs. Mm-hmm. On the end of his shorts. So when the prosecution tried to recreate this, the only way they could get the blood splatter in the shorts was if the person was using the blunt object and hitting the head of the mannequin. So, yeah, you know, that's, he's got blood on the inside of his pants, over of his shorts. Mm-hmm. They tried to recreate that, and that was the only way that they could do that. So according to Deaver, there was other evidence collected at the house that supports this theory. When Daniel George first saw Michael when he arrived on the scene, he says he didn't have shoes on. When he collected his shoes, the bottom of his shoes were bloody. They also found a partial shoe print on the back of Kathleen's sweats. The print matched Michael's shoes. So on the back of her sweats. But her body is laying, she's laying on her back. Mm-hmm. So he had to... So like, it's kind of hard to figure out how the back of her sweats has that partial footprint... Unless on it. he 
turn her over or something. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know. So there's that. Now, huh? I was going to say, you might want to take that out because I sound like a man. Do Unless what? you turn around or something like that. <laughs> Stop it. Oh, my God. Okay, so now David Rudolph is starting to cross-examine Dwayne Deaver. He begins attacking the blood specialist methods. He's challenging the scientific methods they used. They said it was junk science and that they seemed to keep trying over and over again to get the result they wanted, which is true. Like, they did it yeah. tons and tons of times. Um, but, I mean... You know, when things happen, like if you throw a ball down and it bounces up, hits something, you know, like it's just chance. So, I mean, I, you know, I can kind of see both sides. It's like, well, yeah, like we're going to do this over and over again. And if it ever happens, then we know this could be the way that it happened this one specific time. But also it's like if you had to keep doing it over and over again, what are the chances that it happened? Yeah. You know, that way. You know, if you had to do it 900 times, this only happened once. Yeah. So, you know, I see both sides. But anyway. So they were also throwing the head from the top of a ladder to conduct a test. And it was never mentioned that her being thrown from the second floor was a possible way she was killed. So they were even doing things that, like, nobody was even saying could have been the way that she, you know, died. So Rudolph then questions Deaver about Michael's shirt. He asked why they didn't test the shirt. Deaver said since the shirt was so dark, it would be too hard to see the blood with the naked eye. Rudolph mentioned that there are other tests that could have been ran like a Lumina test, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we all know about Lumina tests. If you don't, you know, it's where they take the black light and they see the blood splatter or other liquids, you know, Mm -hmm. that are invisible to the naked eye. So you put the Luminol powder down and then you, you know, do your thing turn the lights off and use the black light. So Deaver says that he did do that test, which was the first time the defense had heard about it. So Rudolph asks Deaver if he wrote a report on his findings. And he said he did. And he gave it to the prosecution. The prosecution is shaking their heads saying they never received a report for him from him. Mm. So he's like, yeah, I did it. I gave it to him. And they're like, no, you, no, you didn't. So that's kind of making them look bad. Right. You know, so. You know, and David Rudolph is, like, a shark. So, like, once he sees that they've got, like, a little bit down, he's, like, you know, he's shocked that this happened and asks what the result was. And Deaver said they couldn't find blood on his shirt. Deaver didn't have an answer how Michael could have blood everywhere else but not his shirt either. So, Michael's lawyers are entitled to any reports that Deaver had done before he testifies. And since he didn't have this report, it's called a discovery violation. And this type of violation can have several outcomes during a trial. But one of the main outcomes could be the witness's testimony that had the violation could be removed as evidence by the judge. So, like, all of this blood splatter Mm -hmm. stuff, like, all of that could be thrown out because not all the evidence was brought forward. Yeah. So, the defense submitted a motion to dismiss all of Deaver's testimony from the trial, but the judge decided... This was an honest mistake, and Deaver's testimony is allowed to stay in the trial. So they tried to get it thrown out, but they couldn't. Too bad. Yeah, it was like, well. So the prosecution calls Dr. Radish, which is the state medical examiner that did the autopsies on Kathleen and um, Martha and Margaret's mom, which I feel bad because I keep forgetting her name. Poor Martha. Liz. Liz. Wait. Martha. Liz? Yeah, Liz Ratliff. So, yeah, Dr. Radish. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah, Dr. Radish. Okay, so anyway. Um, <laughs> so, she testifies that Kathleen's autopsy did show traces of Valium and alcohol. Her blood alcohol level was 0.7 and had not met the alcohol limit of the state, meaning she was not stumbling around drunk like Michael said she was. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I think this could be argued both ways. Kathleen is very short, is short and very thin. What it would take, you know, for someone like me to have a 0.7 blood alcohol level would be different for her. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's, she was super thin. Like, you know, she wasn't like frail, but she was a very fit and thin woman and she's short. So her body weight is not, you know. But if she drank. Quite often, she could have, like, a tolerance. 
Like build up a tolerance. Yeah, that's true too. So then if that's the case, then she could be 0.07 and she could be fine. Yeah. You know, so it just depends. Like, and 0.07 for her could be, you know, two or three glasses of wine Mm -hmm. where for somebody else it could be a whole bottle. Yeah. So, you know, you just don't know, like depending on her tolerance, depending on her weight and all that stuff, how she reacts to whatever the blood alcohol level is, is going to change. So Radish then details her extensive injuries and says that they resemble types of injuries that you would sustain fighting off an attack. She also said she thought it would be unlikely that those injuries were sustained in a fall. She also said that she found strands of Kathleen's own hair in her clenched hands during the autopsy. Hmm. Yeah. And if you remember when I did the um, Hinterkaifeck murders, which I think was on this podcast... Um, they were, you know, there was a little girl who was murdered and she pulled, she was pulling her hair out and she had injuries to her head. So I probably just jumped ahead, but the prosecution thinks this happened because she was clutching her, oh, because she was clutching her head for protection. So a little different than, you know, so this is something else. Oh, (laughs) if I would just read what I put. This is something else that we've also seen in the Hinterkaifeck murders as well. One of the victims was pulling her own hair out after having blunt force trauma to the head. Oh, I swear, y'all, I don't trust myself enough because it's just right I here. Do it too. <laughs> like, I literally will just look up and tell a story that I already have written in here. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so the district attorney asks Dr. Radish what she believes is the cause of death for Kathleen. And she says homicide. Michael's lawyers cross-examine Dr. Radish and start poking holes into the prosecution's theory about what happened. Thomas Meyer said, if there was a fight and Michael started attacking Kathleen, you would expect there to be more damage like skull fractures and things of that nature, but there weren't. David pulls out a dozen binders full of case descriptions and they consisted of 257 fatal beatings in the last decade in North Carolina. And he wants to know how there's no skull fracture or brain trauma in Kathleen's case when 257 blunt force trauma cases have victims with a skull fracture, brain trauma, or both. Mm -hmm. So he's like done the research, which I think I talked about this on the last one, but like he's not playing games. He's looked at 257 cases over the last decade in the state have a, like all of them have a skull fracture or brain trauma or both in a blunt force trauma case, but Kathleen doesn't have either. So, of course, Dr. Radish doesn't have an answer for that. I mean, how can you? This is how David concludes that this was an accident and not a murder. August 22nd, George Orlando Hudson decides Elizabeth Ratliff's death will be admissible in the prosecution's case against Michael. So they're like, all right, we're going to let you do it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is too much of a coincidence. We're going to use it. So, with no additional forensic evidence from Liz's death, they turn to eyewitness accounts and bring Amy Beth Burner to the stand. She was one of Liz's best friends. And Liz is the wife, correct? No, Liz... Liz is the friend. Liz, yeah, Liz is Mary... Mary and Martha. Margaret and Martha's mom. Okay. From Germany. And they think he's innocent. The kids of the... Yeah. Think he's innocent. So, he adopted the kids... The kids think he's innocent, and now they're bringing her death and using it in on this case. case. And now yeah. they've got Liz's friend up there on the stand. And she said her and her husband rushed to the scene that day. She said when she saw Liz at the bottom of the staircase, she had an odd feeling about it and thought that someone had murdered her. But they didn't know who would want to hurt her. So her her concerns about Michael started to raise when he took charge of the scene like it was his home. Mm -hmm. The prosecution then pulled out a letter from one of Liz's neighbors that stated they saw a man running from the house the night before. Mm -hmm. But she couldn't identify who it was. Who was was the man? Who was it? So they couldn't identify who it was, though. Harden didn't come right out and accuse Michael of killing Liz, but he made the connection very clear as he was the last person to see them alive. Or see her alive. David and his team are now challenging the state's blood splatter expert by bringing a world-renowned blood splatter expert to the stand, Dr. Henry Lee, mm-hmm. which we talked about. And he's a big name in forensic science and has tested, testified in hundreds of cases. 
Dr. Lee believes that Kathleen fell several times, and that's what caused the lacerations. As she's thrashing around and trying to get her balance in the staircase, she is slinging blood and splattering it as she's falling again. Lee thinks the reason that the splatter is on the walls is that her mouth would be filled with blood and would be coughing it up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to demonstrate his theory, this is so, this is just a lot. He takes a slug of ketchup and spits it out onto the whiteboard that David, the lawyer, is holding up. Mm-hmm. The splatter did look sort of, you know, like some of it at the scene. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, that looks similar. Mm-hmm. Now Jim Harden gets to question Dr. Lee, the prosecutor. Um, and to prepare, he read everything he could that Dr. Lee had published to see how he was going to operate. So he's like doing his research, his background on Dr. Mm -hmm. Lee, you know, before he questions him, he knows he's going to do it. So Hardin wanted to poke holes in his theory. And he finally got Dr. Lee to say that he believed she fell. And that was his opinion. To which Hardin replied, but can you exclude that this is a bludgeoning death? And he said no, which left some hope to Hardin. Harden then asked Lee what evidence he had to support his theory. And the autopsy showed that there was no blood whatsoever in her airway. So her coughing it up like it should be in her lungs, you know, or would be. So that kind of cancels that out. Right. And um, David then calls another expert to the stand to support their accidental fall theory. They call Ferris Bandak, a biomedical engineer, to testify He developed a simulation of how Kathleen could have fallen down the stairs and where she would have hit the stairs to make those lacerations. So David calls Art Holland to the stand later and talks about how they never found a murder weapon. And Art says they believed it was carried out of the house to hide the evidence. So Art Holland is on the, you know, the other side. And so he thinks it's got carried out. David then goes back to the table and pulls out a four-foot object in plastic and hands it to Art Holland. It's the missing blowpoke from the house. So this whole time, mm -hmm, it was like, dun, dun, dun. And in the documentary, you know, they find it, and it's like this huge moment. Because in the Staircase documentary on Netflix, they're still filming and documenting this whole thing Mm -hmm. while the trial's going on. So it's on the Netflix documentary when they actually find it or you know they're recording whenever when it's found yeah like they start recording so you know okay so missing blow poke from the house found it was sitting in the basement of their house apparently tom meyer got a phone call around one or two in the morning on a saturday night from the peterson's house um because they had found the blow poke mm-hmm. so he went down there and sure enough it was a match This was a big hit to the prosecution because the police searched the house several times and they never found it. When it was photographed, it had cobwebs and dust on it as if it were sitting in the basement for some time. So they're like, it's down here dusty. Y'all didn't find it. So it's not like freshly used seemingly. So when they tested the blowpoke, there weren't any traces of hair, blood, or even fingerprints found on the blowpoke. Some people wondered if it was a new blowpoke put there after the murder so it had time to get cobwebs on it. Mm. Yeah. But when they looked further into the blowpoke, they started to believe it was the original one, especially when they realized the claw that he used to move the logs was missing. After 54 days of testimony, the defense rests and Frida Black rises for the prosecution's closing statement and begins attack by attacking the blowpoke evidence. She reminded the jury that the defense is saying Kathleen knew about Michael and his affairs with other men. She said, does that make common sense to you? It was okay for Kathleen to be sleeping in their marital bed while Michael is at the computer emailing. And this is when you can tell that we're in the South for this trial. Because she says, so she says, it was okay for Kathleen to be sleeping in their marital bed while Michael is at the computer emailing filth, purity, filth. And that's how she says it. Like, she says it so hard. Filth. Pure tea filth. This is called hardcore porn. And this is not the way soulmates conduct themselves. Michael Peterson is guilty of first degree murder. 
So she's just saying all this and she's just like going in mm, on she them. She hold back. Yeah, she's not holding back at all. Purity filth. So now it's time for David Rudolph to defend Michael one last time. And he does sort of a top 10 reasons Michael wasn't guilty to defend him. And here's the list. So number 10, the missing weapon isn't missing and it wasn't used for the murder. Number nine, there is no credible motive. And you don't just decide to kill your wife, your wife for no reason. Number eight, Michael and Kathleen were happily married with no history of violence, violence, <laughs> no history of violence and spousal abuse generally don't start with murder. So he's like, there's no violence in the history of the marriage. Mm-hmm. So people don't just, and then they just kill them, you know. Seven, Michael. I mean, some people just kind of snap. Right. So. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Not a valid point, but okay. (laughs) Okay. Number seven, Michael Peterson's grief and shock was sincere and no one who was there disagreed. Number six, Kathleen Peterson's injuries are not consistent with the beating. No skull fractures plus no other fractures plus no traumatic brain injury equals no beating. Is what he's saying. Number five. The bloodstain evidence is not consistent with the beating, and the state's witnesses don't disagree. Mm-hmm. Number four, the information and documentation from the scene is not reliable. Garbage in, garbage out. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Number three, the state relied on junk science and ignored the limitations of good science. Number two, the state has relied on emotion, guess, and conjecture. Number one, State investigators suffered from tunnel vision, indictment first, evidence afterwards. So he's like, the state is just relying on, you know, guessing, trying to figure this out, emotions. You know, they just instantly honed in on Michael, couldn't think that it was an intruder, couldn't think there was an accidental fall, nothing. They just like went straight for Michael mm-hmm. and then they were like, we'll figure out how he did it later. Because I mean, they don't have the murder weapon. They don't like the blow poke was like the big thing. And like, and where's the blow poke? It's missing. No, nope, it's right here. So it was a whole thing. You know, he's like, it's all circumstantial evidence that they have and nothing really hardcore to really pin it on them so you know so after four days of deliberation the jury has reached a verdict the courtroom is packed and you could hear a pin drop the jury finds him guilty of murder in the first degree and to be sentenced to life without parole the judge asked if he had anything to say in the court and he turned his back to the judge and told his kids who were sobbing that everything was going to be okay News of the verdict has some people in shock and others feeling like justice has been served. He's taken to Nash Correctional Institution, which is a medium security prison in North Carolina, to serve out his sentence. All four of his children continue to support him. They believed he was innocent. So this is Mary Martha, mm-hmm. Todd, and... Um, the other one. The other one. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. Um... So, yeah. So in 2009, Michael does an interview from prison and attempts to address some of the lingering questions in the case, like what happened the night she died. He says they were out by the pool that night and it was a very nice night. They talked and about 30 to 45 minutes later, she went in the house and he stayed out with the dogs for a while. When he went in the house. If only dogs could talk. I know. He'd be like, they, he, <laughs> he lied. He lied. Or she really failed. No one believes him. <laughs> So, you know, I just wish, I mean, it would just to help a lot. Yeah. It would, like, we need The only eyewitness is their dog, Pete. Yeah. Like, Pete, like, Pete comes to the stand. He's like, listen, (laughs) I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but she did know. And she fell down the steps. I saw the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, thank you, Pete. Thank you for your testimony. Mm, (laughs) Not guilty. get a treat. (laughs) Yeah. Like, good boy. (laughs) You're such a good boy. So, Okay. So, you know, yeah, he's like, he stayed out there with the dogs for a while. When he went in the house, he found her lying in the back staircase. And that's where everything begins and ends. She was there and she was just a lot of blood, but he was focused on her. He said he picked her up and there was no question she was dying. So he called 911. He said he knows it's not, he said he, 
He said he knows he's not guilty and that he didn't hurt Kathleen. It's very difficult for him to accept the fact that he's a convicted murderer and prisoner. He said it's just nonsense. He doesn't know what happened, but he knows he didn't kill her and that he loved her. While Michael is in prison, his family and lawyers are working overtime to try to get him a new trial. They filed several appeals and they're blocked. Then in 2009, Michael's former neighbor, Larry Pollard, who is also a lawyer, tells Michael's lawyers about a theory he has. Something didn't sit well with him. He started out as a criminal lawyer and felt he had a sense of ethical responsibility and duty to find out the truth. So he started looking. He was sitting at his desk when his secretary handed him Kathleen's autopsy report. He, which I don't know how he Kathleen's got this. Kathleen's the wife. Yeah. Okay. He noticed the examiner put most of the lacerations were the same measurements, which were a fourth of an inch in diameter. That caught his eye immediately. He found it impossible to take an almost five-foot blow poke and hit someone over the head and get distinct lacerations of the same measurement. Which is, I mean, you know. Yeah, like if you're taking a knife or taking something and hitting something over and over again, the fact that it's going to be the same, yeah, you know, like how rare is that? I feel like it'd have to be something. Would, yeah, it's like. Yeah, like it would specifically have to be like one thing that long that you're just completely diving into something over mm-hmm. and over again to get that. Um. He's like, that's weird. And he keeps digging. And when he sees the part about the hair being in her hand, he finds that the police analyzed all of the hairs in Kathleen's hand. And one of them was a bloody feather. It was stated on page four of the first lab report. um, And he was able to go and examine the feather himself. So he gets the feather from Mm -hmm. her hand and he's examining it. So he took pictures of the slide with a microscope camera with 400 power and found the feather wrapped around Kathleen's hair shaft with fresh droplets of blood on top of it. He then thought this may have been done by owls. What? Yes. So this is a big... But didn't this happen inside? It did. Listen, there is this whole owl theory for this case, and it it is a very big topic. And... Some people believe it sounds absolutely insane and there's no way that an owl could have done this. And then some people are like, that tracks. So this is going to be part of the owl theory. So, Mm -hmm. yes. So he starts doing tons of research into owls. And apparently there are, they are one of the few birds that have microscopic feathers on their feet, very close to their talons. He learns that when an owl grips, it's gripping at about 280 pounds of pressure on their sharp talons. So, like, if they could see my face right now. <laughs> but, like, is it, but think about, like, isn't that crazy, though? But, yeah, like, but, when, like, it's inside, so I just, it's, that's insane It's, it's to gonna, me. it's gonna get there, it's gonna get there. So, but, like, 280 pounds of pressure, that's like a person, like a full-sized human being, pounds of pressure mm-hmm. that they grip. Like, they could pick up anybody. <laughs> It sounds like they will pick up your dog. They'll pick up oh, your they, cat. Yeah. They'll pick up a small child. It sounds like I'm just trying to figure out, like, how are they so strong? I don't understand. They look, they look so little. Y'all better watch out. Because this is insane. Like, okay, so. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your wife. Because the owls will well, snatch y'all up. Definitely hide your wife. Because apparently. Because, <laughs> God. Okay, so combining all of the evidence, he comes up with the theory. Okay, so he thinks she walked down the front patio and was attacked in the back right corner of her head by an owl, which is apparently where 90% of all owl strikes made against humans are. So, like, watch your back, okay? Because if you're walking around in the woods... So, they're saying this happened while she was outside? Yeah, like, on the way into the house. And so it just followed her in, okay? Well, no. Oh, okay. I don't think so. No. I don't think that's what they're... I can't remember. We'll get there. Okay, so several ornithologists examined Pollard's findings and agreed that this could be an owl attack. So people who literally study birds are like, this could be an owl attack. Because remember, like the pool is far away from the house and there's like all these trees and wooded area around Mm -hmm. the house. So, I mean, an owl could be there. I mean, living out here where you live, we've heard an owl before. So, I mean, you don't have to be, you know... There was. 
So watch your head. I mean, the fact that owls will like attack a human's head and that's where 90% of all owl strikes are on a human. Okay. So that's crazy. Then these ornithologists who study birds, like that is their thing. All they do are is study birds Mm -hmm. are like this tracks a little bit, but people who have been attacked by an owl only show minor injuries, usually because they're mainly attacking to be territorial of an area. So they don't just like tear you up. They just like, you know, they, yeah. they like get out Morning, of here. Like, you yeah. So the judge who was over the case said this wasn't too out of the ordinary because there have been one or two cases in different jurisdictions where people say that an owl has attacked and killed some victim. Like what? You know? Okay. So Pollard, which is, you know, the guy mm-hmm. wrote a letter to the district attorney saying that he had to reopen this case. They ignored it and thought it was a ridiculous claim. Then in 2010, news of an unrelated murder case catches the attention of Michael's lawyers. As they learn more, they find out that a woman was found murdered in a remote cul-de-sac in Raleigh or in Raleigh in 1991. A couple of feet away, there was a truck stuck in the mud. So this truck belonged, this ain't got to do with an owl, really. So the owl, this is, this is not an owl attack. But the truck belonged to a man named Greg Taylor. The next day, he came back to get his truck, and there's crime scene tape all around the place. And police ask him why he's there, and he said, I'm coming back to get my truck. So, like, imagine you just, like, leave your truck somewhere, mm-hmm. your vehicle, and then you come back, and there's just police tape around it. And it's like, they're like, what are you doing here? It's like, I that's my truck this is my vehicle but i'd be scared to be like that's my truck i feel like i just leave <laughs> like i don't know what's going on but i wasn't here so i'm just like, y'all can impound it do whatever because i ain't about to be all up in this mess well they're about to find out whose truck it is anyway so you may as well i mean that's true like hey this is my truck i just got yeah, here just- <laughs> i dropped it off last night i don't know what's going on so he tells the police the night before he and his friend were on a bender Greg was a drug addict and he and his friend were out drinking and smoking crack and before they knew it He was driving off the road, and it was stuck in the mud, so they abandoned the truck for the night. So they bring him down to the station and question him, and they don't believe him. They're like, you're a liar. Liar. (laughs) You're a liar and a thief. Yeah. (laughs) Okay? They're like, uh, and the lie detector test determined that was a lie. They're like, no, you, you didn't kill her. So, yeah, they bring him down to the station. They don't believe him. He gets arrested for this woman's murder. Okay, Mm -hmm. in 1993, Greg's trial begins and there's only one piece of physical evidence connecting him to the crime scene. And that's a suspicious substance found on his truck. So this SBI, State Bureau Investigation, agent wrote up a blood spatter report, report, Mm -hmm. blood spatter report and a crime scene analysis. And the report said that there were chemical indications of blood after six days of witness testimony. In a brief deliberation, the jury convicts him and he's sentenced to life in prison. Greg has always denied his guilt and had never had an infraction in prison. He studies to try to find new evidence to get a new trial. And he learns in, two, two, he learns in 2008 there's a new state organization called the Innocence Inquiry Commission. It's a government agency set up to examine claims of innocence. Greg applied to the agency and they agreed to check. When Greg's lawyers examine the case file, they find what they believe could prove his innocence. When the blood expert from the state concluded blood was found on and under his truck, it wasn't blood at all. And the expert was Dwayne Deaver. So he's the one, the same expert who was testifying at Michael Peterson's case. Mm -hmm. They found out that Dwayne was lying. Mm -hmm. Greg was convicted through falsified evidence. The one piece of evidence connecting him to the crime was that splatter of blood. When Duane tested the blood, he did a very specific test that showed that the blood came back negative from being human blood, but he didn't put that in his report. Ratchet. Yeah. He was just wanting to get the glory of finding that, finding the... Okay. Because that happens all the time. They're just like, well, we're going to have to do something, get this case wrapped up, because it's... Yeah, like, oh, it's blood. Like, okay, but it's blood of a bird. Oh, he's a hero. He found the Yes. The person that did it. Yeah, a mess. So you know, once this came to light, Gregory got a hearing before a three judge commission where Greg's lawyers will show proof of his innocence and the judges will decide to either uphold or overturn his conviction. Dwayne Deaver is called to this 
Dwayne Deaver is called to the stand during this hearing. He says he couldn't say with scientific certainty that the splatter on his truck was blood. He also said that this was common practice at the SBI to leave out negative rulings on reports. Okay, but it's negative rulings for human blood, yeah. sis. What is going on? Hello? Well, we usually leave out negative findings when it's human blood. And that's what that's the only thing y'all got? And this man has gone to prison for life? Mm -mm. I'm shook. Okay, so... In February of 2010, the judges make their ruling, and they find Greg innocent. The news about Dwayne Deaver shocks the state, and Attorney General Roy Cooper orders a review of 15,000 SBI crime cases that Dang. involved blood analysis from 1987 to 2003, and that hundreds... So they find this, and then they find out that hundreds of them have been mishandled. Mm -mm. There were five that were considered very negligent, and they were all handled by Dwayne. David Rudolph jumps on this news and tells the judge that Michael needs a new trial. They discover that Dwayne exaggerated his experience, saying he worked over 500 cases, but it was only 54 cases total. Isn't Dwayne the one that was saying that he was innocent, like he didn't? Mm-mm. He's the blood spatter analyst that did all those tests. On the hour, he, did he, is he the one that spit the ketchup? No, that's Dr. Lee. D Dwayne Deaver is on the prosecutor side and he's the one that they took the mannequin the mannequin, the mannequin okay and dipped it in the wigs blood mm -hmm. and beat it and beat it and beat it and then they finally got it the way they wanted it and da 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 okay. that's him so he has falsified records on all these cases mm -hmm. and he said he worked over 500 cases and he only worked 54 cases just lying just lying and lying on these reports Don't. and getting people put in prison for life put his hand on the bible he sure did. Mm. He sure did. And said to tell the whole truth. The not whole th truth. The whole truth and nothing but, but the, the truth. truth. But he told the whole lie and everything, everything but, the, but, the, everything the truth. but the truth. Oh, So, yeah. So he, David, was able to convince the court that Dwayne had committed perjury and was able to get Michael a new trial. He ought to. They ought to arrested him. Yeah. I'm like, how? So, he lied under oath. Yeah. That's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> perjury. <laughs> well, that's what perjury is. Yeah. So they... So, you know, I don't, I may have on here something about that, but I mean, he did get in trouble and like, he's not yeah, anything anymore. Mm -hmm. So whew, I could not believe that. So eight years after his conviction. So Michael's been in jail for eight years. Michael is able to get a retrial, retrial and is released on bond. A trial date is set for May of 2017 and a new prosecution team takes over the case it's going to be an uphill battle for the prosecution because they didn't know if Riz, La Riz Latlift, Liz Ratliff's death will be admissible or the fact that Michael is bisexual and they already had to throw out Dwayne Deaver's findings as well. So, like, they don't know what they're even going to be able to use because yeah. they don't know if Liz's death is going to be admissible or the fact that Michael is bisexual and Dwayne Deaver's stuff is just gone to the wind because that was trash anyway. Um, trash <laughs> trash pure tea filth trash. that's what's pure tea filth Dwayne Deaver making up all this stuff Frida <laughs> so and I'm not saying I, I really don't know what I like sometimes I think he did it sometimes I'm like I don't know some stuff makes me think how could it be a fall but like, the point is Dwayne Deaver is trash yeah Okay, like he falsified all this stuff. He got poor Greg put in jail, prison for life. Thank God he got out. But like, this is a hot mess. So I do think he did need a new trial because all this evidence that they had piled yeah. up against him from Dwayne Deaver, just a mess. So um, as the state sorts through the file case, some of the evidence was mishandled. So here we go again. People not doing stuff right. The DNA, there was DNA contamination, so the clothes couldn't be tested again. Like, what are y'all doing? Come on, somebody. Can't even test the shirts and stuff again, because mm -hmm. y'all done contaminated it. With their backs against the wall, they decide to offer Michael Peterson an Alford plea. And so an Alford plea is when a person goes into, goes, <laughs> when a person goes into court and accepts that they're giving up their rights to a trial and punishment for the crime, but does not say he's guilty. So it would put him down as a convicted felon, but the eight years 
as time served and he can never be charged again because double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on February 24th, 2017, 16 years after Kathleen's death, he appears in front of the judge to say that he will take the Alford plea. Candace, Kathleen's sister, gives an emotional statement after he pleaded guilty. Okay, now listen. She's not having any of this. She was upset about the Alford plea. She said, Michael Peterson, the words Alford plea, they're meaningless. Alford Schmalford, it means nothing. Guilt. You brutally took the life of a woman that provided for you, regarded your children, loved your children, and she loved you. She made a home, people complimented, she cooked extravagantly, she opened her heart and home with joy. Kathleen was the best person you've ever had in your life. You are pleading guilty today to beating my sister Kathleen to death. Michael Peterson, not only can you wear the scarlet letter A for adultery, listen, she's not playing, but also the black letter G for guilt. Not perfect justice, but justice. Candace said it was extremely cathartic like psychological relief Mm -hmm. to her to let him know exactly how she felt about losing her sister and to hear him say he was guilty. Honey, she was like, before we go, not only Scarlet Letter A, Black Letter G. Okay. (laughs) Black Letter G. I said, ooh, she is not playing. She sat down and wrote this up, honey. So Michael was officially free to go. He did a small interview in front of the courthouse for the local news that night. He said, of all the decisions I've made in my life, this has been the most difficult. Clayton, that's the other son's name. Oh, (laughs) My son, Clayton, he put it all in perspective. He said, Dad, you're playing a game at a crooked table. The odds are against you and you'll never win. Diane Fanning, the American crime writer and author of the book written about this case called Written in Blood, said the time he spent in jail was nothing compared to the rest of Kathleen Peterson's life and that her family, her and her family were robbed of justice. So she's like, he did it. So today, Michael lives in Durham, North Carolina, in a two-bedroom condo. He spends time with his children and grandchildren, and he's working on a new novel. One of the jurors... I killed my wife. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Stop it, stop it. One of the jurors from the original trial said she saw Michael one day and had this weird feeling because they had convicted this man of murdering his wife. Now he's just walking the streets, just like she was. That has to be weird. Yeah. If you're on the trial and it's like, hey, like I convicted you of murder. (laughs) Don't mind me. Just going to get these groceries. So James Harden, which, you know, is the head of the prosecution Mm -hmm. at that time hopes that when people think back on this case, he hopes they don't think about Michael Peterson because he doesn't deserve it. He hopes they think about Kathleen because she deserves to be remembered. Candace said Kathleen is remembered and that her daughters still remember and have fond memories of her. She also says she's thankful that she has so many pictures of her sister and ended the episode, because I did this all on those episodes, Mm -hmm. saying that Kathleen used to tell her this quote, You know you're going to have bad days, but when you do, you have to reach past the bad day and bring forward those happy days. Mm. And so that is the story of Kathleen Peterson and her death. So, I mean, y'all, this is, I mean, what if this owl did it? Okay, let's just think about this. Okay, say that she did get attacked by the owl. So, and they did like a, they did play like really loud sounds of somebody screaming and crying for help from the house and you cannot hear it at the pool. Like you can't hear it at all. So let's say she was close to the house. She got attacked by this owl. She may be crying for help, but Michael can't hear her. She goes in the house. I don't know why she would be trying to go upstairs. But she does, and she falls, and she's already bleeding. But then you think about it, there's no blood the yeah. tracing through the house like that. Not really. And, you know, head wounds bleed really badly, which is why there's all that blood in the staircase. So, I don't know. I don't believe the house theory. I don't think I do either. Like, just walking through it, it's like, okay, well, if she got attacked outside, there was only one splatter of blood, and that was I don't remember. On the front porch, wasn't it? 
yeah, on the front, there was that one drop. So where'd that come from? Michael. The owl, <laughs> the owl went overhead and had one droplet of blood on his talon and it just dropped right in front of the doorstep. I mean, you know, and then if she did fall down the stairs, I'm trying to figure out how you could have all those cuts in the back of your head from falling down the stairs. You know, I mean, are they sharp stairs? You know what I mean? I'm very confused. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I mean, I, I guess I do feel like he murdered her. I think he did. But what he hit her with, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of cases where the murder weapon's never found. So, I mean, yeah, it still could have been he done it with something else. They just never found it. Right. And couldn't figure out what it was. Yeah. And, like, in the HBO documentary, they show, which is very brutal. So, like, if y'all watch that, get ready for that mess. Because, shoo, at the end, they show the two versions of what the defense says and Mm -hmm. what the prosecution says. So, they show her going up the stairs, and she slips and falls. And then she's, like, kind of writhing around, trying to get up. She keeps falling, hitting her head. She's spitting everywhere. Chelsea. (laughs) Chelsea's about to start laughing. So... They do that, but then they also show him just, like, using the stair hitting her, mm-hmm. but, you know, and I mean, they did it how, you know, they did it, but I'm just, like, they were long, they were going vertically, not horizontally, so, like, if he was, you know, hitting her head, like, he would have to, she'd have to be lined up with the stair like, vertically for him to hit her in the head to get the lacerations that she had. So I don't know, y'all. I don't, I mean, I think he did it. I don't know what he did it with, but this is one of those things where it's like, okay, see, Dwayne Deaver, you messed it all up. Mm-hmm. If you just done everything by the book, he probably still would have been in prison and everything would have been all good. But no, you had to go and act a fool out here and done put innocent people, truly innocent people in prison for life. And so now all of your work, whether you had a good day and you were being a really good guy and you found the evidence that you needed to find, well, now that's all messed with. Yeah, that's all gone. So y'all let us know what you think. I'm very interested to see what people think. I know some people really do believe the owl theory, and I'm sure that whatever we said about it to feel like we disproved it. Harlan, here, come this way. (laughs) just lay down buddy Harlan's trying to get up here and he's just bumping into everything bumping his head but yeah so y'all let us know what you think um, because I'm very interested to know what everyone thinks about this and you Jessica especially because you requested this I'm curious to see if you believe the owl theory I don't think you do yeah so we'll see okay so if you have any questions comments concerns tell us what you think about this Go to a million murders at gmail.com. You can check out our Instagram and look at the pictures of the case. And you can also go to our Facebook page, start a conversation with among people that the listeners or whatever. Y'all can go back and forth mm-hmm. and discuss. Yes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you come back for. A million more. Goodbye. Farewell. That feet is in goodbye.